0: Hi, this is Denise. I just wanted to give you a heads up for today's episode. There is some very graphic language, so if you find that offensive or if you have children that you'd rather not have exposed to that, please be aware that there is some pretty colorful language in this episode. Okay, take care.
1: Hello and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened, where we discuss, explore, and connect with fellow empaths, healers, intuitives, and seekers. On today's show, we're talking with guest Dr. Michelle. She's a board-certified internal medicine doctor who left her traditional career last year to become a podcaster. For most of her career, she worked in the inpatient setting as a hospital-based specialist and worked in the primary care setting for the last 4 years. When she decided that she didn't want to lie anymore, she believes that the way in which healthcare is structured in our nation, the primary focus of healthcare is no longer on health, but the business that our health creates. Michelle feels we are not doing enough to get to the underlying causes of what is causing illness, and after years of frustration, she decided to leave the career she's worked her whole life for in search of what contributes to our feeling whole which led her to create and host the Lost or Found podcast. Wow, that's an amazing bio, Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) Describes my midlife crisis very well. (laughs) No, it's perfect. So let's start with that because you meet very few people who go all the way through med school, which is a huge, phenomenal feat, and have this amazing career and then decide, no,
2: this is not who I am anymore. So can you tell listeners about that journey? Yes, and I totally will. But I just want to like share my fangirl moment with everyone. I've been a huge psychic teachers, enlightened empath, like follower for a very long time. And, you know, actually your podcasts have been, you know, a part of my spiritual awakening. And I just wanted to let you know, and that I don't blame you. And I'm thankful. <laughs> Thank
1: you so, so much. I, we, we really, really appreciate that.
2: And yes, so, you know, most of my career, I spent in the hospital setting, and I really moved to primary care to be closer to my young family, you know, and I live in California in Santa Cruz, California. And, you know, I noticed the last few years of hospital medicine, I was actually developing some anxiety. And the stress was really getting to me, but I actually didn't know what that feeling was. But in primary care, I realized I was developing rage. I had really didn't have an idea what primary care was before I went in there, because in the hospital setting, you really see the acutely ill. But with primary care, you know, you're talking to people about their lives, what's occurring or, or their concerns that they have. But I worked for corporate medicine and in corporate medicine, you see 26 patients a day, um, you know. We, on average, you know, they're told that they have 15 minutes, but it's actually seven minutes or less, because the minute you walk into a room, your blood pressure is taken by a medical assistant, if they're, if you're asked any questions, that's time actually taken away from the doctor. So I would have seven minutes or less, you know, and it got to a point where I felt like I was living a lie, like I had entered this field till you know, hopefully help people, but ultimately to know that you're helping no one. Like any conversation can last seven minutes or more. You know, and it got to the point where I was getting so angry. I was bringing it up with my husband that maybe I'd like to quit. You know, and at the time that was like three or four years ago. My husband was saying, "But Michelle, you have the golden handcuffs. You know, all you have to do is work till the mecca of retirement, and you know, if you don't <laughs> basically if you don't die or get sick before then, then you get a pension. You know. But I kept on bringing it up, and finally, in a taco bar on the date night, my husband was saying in response to my saying that I wanted to quit, he recommended that if I were to quit and he would support it, that I should really work on the project so that I didn't get depressed. And I think that was the best advice anyone could have given me. Because then I started to think about, you know, instead of just accepting what life is, like, what do you love? And your podcast definitely helped me to realize that. And I think what I realized I loved were self-help books and by having like a podcast like an it would be like an audio self help book but the ability to have conversations you know that were not being had in the primary care office like conversations that can actually add to our health you know discover our health so that every one of us can actually become an advocate because i think the truth is and i think we all know this healthcare is first and foremost a business our health is not the priority
1: That is so true. And what a testimony to your marriage too, because that's a big thing your husband did. I mean, it's a huge step you're making. I have a friend who wants to walk away from teaching and she says, but how can I? I'm still paying my student loans off. So it's a huge leap, but I really enjoy listening to your podcast as well. And on one of the podcasts, you said that I think you were saying you started asking yourself, are you willing to die for this career?
2: Yeah. And, you know, like, That was a question I would ask my patients because something, you know, even though I complained about primary care and I was so frustrated, I think what primary care taught me is that we're not alone in our suffering. Actually, we're united by our suffering. And patients would come in, so many would come in so stressed. Like you could see it physically on them. They're shaking, they're anxious. Like, you know, coming down the hall, everyone looks fine. But once that office door closes, they almost unravel a little bit and they let you see them. And I just couldn't believe how, you know, we all feel this. And then the question that, you know, in my seven minutes, I would come up with zingers, right? So if they don't remember anything from the visit, you know, at least if I had a, a zinger and sometimes it was sometimes, sometimes like, you know, fuck that shit. But anyway, but, <laughs> but, but you know, the zinger I had for them was for those patients, I would ask them, are you willing to die for your job? and then that became a question I would ask myself am I willing to die for my job? And I knew my answer was no because it got to a point where I would look at the walls of my office, right like after you go into the patient rooms and you come into your office you're like rushing to write your note in between patients. I was started to wonder how I was going to die. Like I was creating my health with this unhappiness that was surrounding me. And it was actually a really funny moment. And this is the moment that I realized that I had reached my end, you know, because this was before the pandemic. And now I think it's much, much stronger, but the corporation that I had worked for was, you know, supporting a half day physician wellness conference, you know, so that physicians take care of themselves, you know, uh, for the benefit of the company. that we work harder, because the work was not going to change. But if you recognize where you were going wrong, that you take care of yourself so that you work better. And it was so funny, because they had these, it was like a slideshow, right? And they had like, you know, slides that were saying, don't be woe is me, be wow is me. There was a slide with like kids from the depression era, where they had no food, it was black and white. And they were saying, like, t- they were telling us, don't compare your- yourself to those who are, you know, less off. You know, no, compare yourself to those who are less off, not those who are doing better than you. And it's like kids in a depression year. And I was laughing, right? And no one else in the room was laughing. And then they wanted to go around and ask. The question was, what mantra would you say to yourself when going gets tough? So we went around our table and the physician in front of me, her mantra was, you know, just keep on going. Your bed's right around the corner. And then I stated my mantra and it had been my mantra for a couple of weeks. And I stated it out loud. And my mantra was, fuck this shit. Never give up. (laughs) (laughs) And I realized when I said it, I had reached my end. Like there's no turning back when that's your end.
1: Wow. That is super powerful. You know, I think about that Mecca of retirement more than I probably should, you know, because you hear it from so many people, 12 more years, eight more years, 10 more years. And and I look at, I look at elderly people. I look at my dad now who's, you know, in the final stages of Alzheimer's and he worked so flipping hard his whole life. It's what he was most proud of. And he had 11 good years of retirement. 11. And yeah. I think is all of that work and stress. I can remember him coming home. One of my first memories, I must've been, I don't know, three. He came home and he was sitting in front of the fireplace, having a drink with my mom. And he was crying. I, my dad never cried. And I said, what's wrong, dad? And he said, I had to fire someone today. And I, I remember the tree was up and, and I remember I was such a little kid. I looked at the fire and I was like, you threw someone in the fire? And he <sighs> laughed and it kind of like, you know, lightened the mood. But all of that stuff. And I think you, all of that, hell, for 11 years of retirement, is that in yeah. we here? It makes no sense.
2: And I think the truth is there's a huge wear and tear we do to our bodies. Because I know so many physicians, right? Because I work for corporate medicine. There's a pension who stay with it. But there's so many physicians that I know who actually die early. They die a year or two after retirement. So there's a huge wear and tear that we do to our bodies with that stress, the lack of taking care of ourselves, like revealing the emotions that we're having. And this is not just the plight of the doctor. This is the plight of everyone like stress is an epidemic, there is a wear and tear front to that.
0: Michelle, I think you're the epitome of balance between the hemispheres. You're obviously a very, no, truly, you're very intelligent. You're very articulate, very, all those things, but also highly, highly empathic, sensitive, intuitive. For all the people, we have a lot of listeners who are in the healthcare field. How did you ever find the balance between all these for so many years that you were in the middle of it? Because that's why I left my real job, so to speak, as well, was, I kept seeing people getting sick. I was watching my own health and wellness and I thought it's not worth it. And I think, how do you, how did you find that balance all the years you were there?
2: Well, I was really lucky because if I hadn't found your podcast, I don't think I would have found it. You know, there were books that you recommended to, you know, for people to read and I actually listened to that in the, in the midst of my anxiety in the hospital. You know, psychic teachers had recommended uh, Brian Weiss's Many Lives, Many Masters. That was the beginning of my self-discovery. That book freaked me out. Like I read it in 10 hours, couldn't sleep for two weeks, but it changed how I viewed life. You know, there's so much more than we know, or even like dying to be me, Anita Morjani or Eben Alexander's um, book, or Map of Heaven by Mary Neal. And I always went to the doctors, I mean, I always went to the books written by doctors, because I wanted to know if there were other physicians who fell off the wagon like me, and what their process was like.
1: Well, you're you're like a rebel with a cause. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Like that, I can't turn off that like analytical mind, you know, because even with my quitting, there was a process to that too, like... When I first quit, I was really, really angry, like there's anger building up. Then when you actually quit, you think it's kind of like an R-E-S-P-E-C-T moment. But then it becomes like really all by myself, you know, that song. And then it really changed into a grief, a grief that I had worked my whole life for this career, and it didn't work out. And then it actually led to feelings of quite honest, I would say this to no one else, but to myself, I, you know, we're all much harder. I felt like a huge loser for a period of time. And then it progressed to doubt. And now I'm here, you know, I feel like after progressing through all those emotions, like, why can't you, why can't we all try to do something we love? Because I really think doing something you love is part of your health. And I think doctors know this too, but you know, healthcare is really smart, I think, because doctors go through residency, right? Like the hell called residency, but they kind of like exploit this type A personality, right? Type A personality never, ever gives up. Even when you're expected to work, it was back then it was 36 hour shifts. Even if you can barely keep your eyes awake, you survive, you carry that phone, you pick up the um, you know calls from the nurses, you just don't give up. And it's the same thing with medicine. I think many people feel that We're not really helping anyone, but we do it because, you know, we, we don't quit either, or we've forgotten what true healing is, you know, like just because someone has a symptom and you give them medicine, that's not healing.
1: Yeah, that's so true. You know, my friend is, um, she's a nurse and she's getting a higher degree in nursing and she had to write a paper, um, identifying one solution to the nursing crisis, like how to get more nurses, So she asked me to read her paper and check it for grammar stuff. It was a great paper. And the whole thesis, the whole premise was pay them more. Like, what a shocking suggestion, right? Mm -hmm. So she gets a C, I think, on the paper or C minus. And I'm like, what happened? The teacher wrote on there, not a practical suggestion. (laughs) And that's why she docked her grade. How is it not a practical suggestion to pay people what they're worth? And yet you see this whole monetizing of our entire world. I was reading, um, I try to read Carl Jung from time to time. It's kind of like reading Paradise Lost. I have to read like a chapter and walk away and think about it. (laughs) But I was reading parts of one of his books and he was saying that after World War II, we kind of lost God, you know, he he was lost that faith. And, And he was writing that he believes as a collective consciousness, we have replaced God with money. And that's who we are worshiping at the altar of now. And that leaves us with this empty feeling. And we're always trying to fill it with more and more and more more accolades, more money, more promotions, etc. And and gosh, that has really stayed with me because you see it everywhere.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think that's absolutely true because you know, I get nervous, right? Even before this interview, I was really nervous. And you know, I made sure I recited every single prayer that I knew. <laughs> But, you know, what are the prayers with St. Francis of the prayer, you know, and like knowing when, you know, where there is doubt, having faith, you know, and I think we've forgotten that I think even with what your friend's paper, is money even worth it, you know, to risk your health, because this is like an example that, you know, medicine really knows, do you know what the number one money maker in medicine is, it's heart attacks. And there is tremendous information out there, you know, by Dean Ornish, who who used to be at UCSF, where he talks about how lifestyle changes, like low-fat diet, you know, more plant-based, stressing less, having better relationships, how it's actually good for the heart, and it can help to reverse heart disease. You know, this information has been out there for a very long time, but healthcare has not incorporated that into the practice of medicine. Because, you know, the reality is heart attacks is the number one moneymaker in medicine. And if your doctors are not talking to you about this, or like, why do we wait for like, hypertension to develop? If you really think about primary care, there's absolutely no prevention. They wait, they take your blood pressure. And then by the second blood pr- elevated blood pressure, they say, Oh, you're recommended for this medicine. But there is nothing that we prevent. But I think if we're advocates for our own health, if we acknowledge how we feel, like we know so much more earlier than anyone else. Or there's feelings that you can't deny. Or how does your stomach feel? Your body is already telling you all this information.
1: Isn't that one of the reasons why the most heart attacks we have are on a Monday? Because it's connected to our stress around work. Is is that true? Is it really?
2: That'd be kind of interesting. High cortisol level day.
1: I don't know if it was like a scholarly study, but I had read that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Or sometimes there are studies where if it's a full moon, what's the ER like? Oh, yeah. That one I think has been confirmed. But, Mm -hmm. you know, like an easy example. I realized that I wasn't really doing enough because, you know, when the primary care doctor has a person come in with like hemorrhoids, like butt bleeding. We love that, right? Because everyone else has like heart disease, stroke, diabetes, you know, hypertension, whatever, right? The whole plethora of what is American health. But when someone comes with something as simple as hemorrhoids, and fine, we can treat that really easily. You can recommend a sitz bath, you know, like suppository. But then when you look up from the butt and look at someone's face and look at their face you can kind of get an idea of what they're experiencing it, what they're experiencing. But the way in which healthcare is, we don't ask questions because we have to get on to the next patient. I think you're either okay with that feeling or not. And I think for me, it got to the point where I didn't want to live like a hypocrite. If I wanted to help someone, I really wanted to help someone even if it means like starting over. And unfortunately, that's where I am. (laughs) I'm starting over, but maybe that's fortunate too, because based on what you love, now I have the courage after going through all my emotions about making something you love and how are you going to make it?
0: You've also chosen a direction that empowers people to fully embrace their own health and wellness, not just from a traditional medical standpoint. I mean, the last time, I'm, this is terrible to say to a medical doctor, I don't go unless I absolutely have to. I, I really, I pay attention. I have a blood pressure cuff. I check my blood. I, I go if I need to, but I don't, I don't, I've never handed over my control to them in years and years. And I'm not on any meds and I do stress management and all those things. But the last time I went, she said, okay, well, we need to take your weight. And I said, no, you don't. I know what I weigh. I don't need mm-hmm. to see those numbers. And it kind of pissed her off a little bit. And she said, no, we need that. And I said, why do you need that? that it, it's not relevant. It's the same as it's been. It's not fluctuating. But I felt almost defensive that I had to defend my own way of embracing my health and wellness with the person who was supposedly there to take care of me. And I think for you, you must have experienced that all the time in those seven minutes
2: yeah, because sometimes I was a physician that listened, and sometimes I didn't. you know, like one thing that the podcast shocked me about was that I actually, when i when I asked questions, I actually listened. As a doctor, it's such a shame how much you don't listen. And Denise, based on what you're saying, I don't disagree with you because I think all of us should be the biggest advocates for our health. And I don't think that means like looking at, you know WebMD, but I think really knowing what we're feeling how we're feeling, and why. We have the answers. We have the why.
0: And as empaths, especially, because our body will be a barometer.
2: Yeah.
1: In the beginning, did you get a lot of pushback from people saying, like, how could you walk away from that? What are you going to do for a retirement pension now? And and if you did, how did you handle it?
2: I'm still going through it. You know, like, there's a portion of my friends, you know, who think, I'm courageous. And there's another, you know, significant part of number of people who think I'm absolutely crazy to walk away. You know, like the first question that I got was, you know, if you quit, aren't you going to think it was just such a waste? You know, and I don't think that is because I think I'm here for a reason. I think, you know, I went through primary care for a reason. And I thought that was one of the worst experiences of my life. Like I was supposed to learn things. I was supposed to get that mad. And I think I'm here for a reason. I don't think I would have understand, understood all this if I weren't a doctor. Yeah. And there's a different take I want to take on it. Because ultimately, I'm interested in our health. But I don't think our health is separate from you know, our spirituality, our emotions, you know, all of that is entwined together in mind, body and health. And we have so much more control than we think.
1: And that's what you're sharing on your podcast. So tell listeners about your podcast and some of the amazing guests you've had and what that experience of uh, starting anew has been like for you.
2: Um, I, it's involved a lot of panic attacks, to be honest with you. <laughs> because before I um, did the podcast, like I've never actually really, un- I mean, I-, I recorded my you know notes on the computer at work, but I never did anything for fun on the computer. So I didn't quite understand what the download was either. It was that bad. Or my connecting wires for like recording, uh, you know, a microphone. I didn't really understand what a microphone was. So I would watch YouTube videos almost like 70 to- 17 to 20 times. To understand the concepts of even like attaching the wiring or knowing how to use GarageBand. So it's definitely been a process. But, and then the other thing is, I never knew I could like actually have a conversation with people on a podcast. And I've, in every single conversation I've had, I'm actually very, very nervous and it's something for me to work through. But with Denise, when I did my interview with her, I was totally having panic attacks before, you know? <laughs>
0: Nobody yeah. knows. That's what I love. Like you're, you're stressed right the hell out, but nobody
2: knows. <laughs> you know what's so funny? Like as I was, you know, before each like interview, I do a little monologue that I write or I think about. And that's been really interesting for me because when I was writing through my emotions, like the anger, the grief, the feeling like a loser, you know, the doubt, I was still forced to write a monologue despite those emotions. And that's been really interesting for me because I didn't even know I could write or to be forced to do something when you don't feel well. You know, what I've learned is maybe we all can do hard things and I can do hard things. Yeah. That's my
1: favorite part are your monologues in the beginning. You're very honest. You're very vulnerable and you're an excellent writer.
2: Oh, wow. Thank you. I love the way from a writer. (laughs) Oh,
1: I love the way it sets up everything, but I, I, I feel like the listener gets a sense of really of who you are and where you are in your journey. And I think that's important because the listener feels like they're with you, not listening at your feet. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like they're right there with you and you've had big people on like Dr. Bruce
2: Lipton would have intimidated the hell out of me. And you handled that. (laughs) I mean, I thought I was going to wet my chair, but I didn't, you know, but, um, yeah, I mean, I for me I, I still approach it the way I would approach medicine, like I hyper prepare. Mm-hmm. Like I read a lot before the interviews and you know, maybe that's kind of a problem when you can't let go so well and I'm learning to let go a little bit, but that's definitely been a pro- a problem, but I also like the topics that I discuss, these are all topics that I find very very interesting. And, you know, even the podcast has been like a process itself, right? Because in the, you know, right now I'm almost closing on one season. I've almost completed a year, but before, like, I would, you know, I just, I started social media with the podcast. I was looking at the numbers and looking at the numbers for social media and the podcast can totally make you crazy, you know, but then I started midway, like in the summer, I was feeling so badly that maybe I should just quit, or maybe it's not worth it. But then everyone quits, so why don't I be the group in the group that doesn't quit and see what happens? But then I kind of changed my thinking, and I realized, wow, like in my midlife crisis, I'm recording my midlife crisis like on audio. My kids can look back at this moment and be like, "That's a year, mom lost her shit," you know. But like, (laughs) I realized that the podcast is actually for me. All the topics that I discuss, it's because I'm really interested in it. You know, for me, if I'm my biggest fan and I still like what's being produced, even though it's mine, because aren't we our, our harshest critic, then maybe it's a good thing if I'm still my biggest fan. Oh, well, that's
1: beautifully said. I like that you have a lot of doctors on your podcast, but you also have people like Denise and Mia on your podcast. So it really is a holistic approach. What has been like one of the most surprising guests you've had on?
2: I mean, Dr. Bruce Lipton was a surprising guest, you know, to be honest with you, I had reached out to him three times. The first two I was denied, I mean, he declined, you know, and I just randomly had a thought in my head, maybe just to try again, because with those like people that I want to interview, I go through three month, three to six month cycles in terms of reaching out to them they don't know who I am. So I just reach out, reach out, reach out, you know. And on the third time, he said yes, that he had a cancellation. And was I willing to take that, you know, that that spot that he had? Hell, yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, there was no way I was not going to take that spot. And I wasn't prepared for how, for how early it was. But for his interview, he spoke a lot, you know, it was almost not like a conversation, because he has a lot to say. But at the same time, I thought about his interview for days. I thought about what he said for days. It's so powerful. But some of the surprising guests on the show were actually some of my friends. There's Oriana Gleesman, you know, in her episode is entitled cocooning, and she talks about her divorce. And I think like speaking together on the podcast, it actually made us closer friends. Because it was so candid,
1: yeah, and you're really an active listener in that moment, too, and I think sometimes people share more than maybe they even share with themselves, so- or
2: recently adoption, right? like I didn't know you know, I knew her from before, and you know but you know by nationality she's she was born in Korea, but was adopted here. But when she was saying how adoption stems from trauma, you know. It could, you know, it could be around their birth, how they're conceived, you know, the trauma of the separation on all levels. I never viewed it that way before. It's yeah. like so many things to think about and what we still carry.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What we carry with us all the time. Yeah. Like I found and the, the podcast you did on pregnancy was really interesting too.
2: Yeah. Women's topics are not talked about at all. Women's health topics. And postpartum, you're supposed to like look perfect like the 1950s mom when, no, it's like a state of disarray. I
1: totally agree. With being an empath and a doctor, how did those two work for you in your career then? And how do you blend those two now? I feel like I know how you blend those two now, but was it harder? I know you've talked before about coming back to your windowless office. Like, What was that Mm -hmm. like for you?
2: I didn't realize I I was an empath until much later in life when you talked about that word, actually, Samantha, you know, and I looked it up and I was like, oh, that's so interesting, but that's not me. And then I realized later on that was me. And it sort of made sense because the hospital is like a very, uh, like, kind of like a tumultuous place, right? Because there's stress on all levels from the patient, from the doctor, you know, there's people's vulnerabilities. And something that I realized really quick was I didn't like closing the door in the patient's room, you know, like I would just feel awful or really drained. But, you know, the way in which I had practiced medicine was that, you know, when I practiced in Silicon Valley, I had an hour drive home if I were, I was lucky. Sometimes it would take longer than that, but I would feel so drained. I felt like I had nothing left to give to my children by the time I got home. I was so, so drained. Then I learned the word boundaries from your show. (laughs) And though, you know, I had no idea and I didn't realize boundaries was how I could protect myself, help someone, but also make sure I'm there for myself. And I think in the primary care setting, it's really hard sometimes too, because usually I was able to maintain myself, but there've been like really a handful of cases where I could literally feel the patient's pain. To the point that it was giving me chest pain. It's like they were suffering so much. Like I could feel it. Yeah. And I would have my quick little maneuvers, either like slamming the phone to cut the cord, like in my office. Or, you know, the medical assistants, the medical assistants would laugh. Because I would be doing jumping jacks in my room to just shed it off. But That's sometimes so it's hard. really hard.
1: It's It's so hard. You know, my oldest daughter is really struggling with choosing her major. She wants to stick with English because she wants to go to law school. But she's like I don't know if I want to go to law school. I'm not 100% sure about that. And her big thing is she says, you know, I want to be a mom one day, God willing, but I think I want to be a lawyer too because I love to debate and write. And she's like I I don't know how I would balance the two. And I think it is so hard to find that sense of balance, to find those boundaries when you're trying to create a life for yourself, but still be there for children or partners, spouses, friends in your life as well. It's it's overwhelming. And then if you add empathic traits onto that, it, it can feel like an anchor. And so I do think boundaries, like you're saying, is really key. And having some distraction or ways to like kind of just cut it off or block it is so important. Or else you become kind of like this automaton, you know. Yeah. Um, and and that's just that's just not good
2: for anyone. And I think with like the modern day cell phone, right? Because before, back in the day, you would call someone and you know through like the wired telephone, and you would leave a message on the voicemail. But now everyone, you know, you can find everyone on their cell phone. It's like you know, for my corporate medicine, we the doctors were given a cell phone and you were given a computer so that you were constantly able to be, so that you would always be able to be you know found yeah, there is no disconnect employment. i would know doctors who would have their computers on their chest in their bed you know writing notes until 2 a.m. and that's how they fall asleep you know in terms of balance like i actually thought i was able to do it all when i was doing it all and then when i stopped you know, I realized, wow, I didn't realize it was so hectic. I had no idea that that when I was doing it all, working my full-time job, you know, shopping for food on my day off, you know, um, on Saturdays and Sundays, maybe picking my kid up, that I was actually not seeing my children at all.
1: I used to think I was a great multitasker. And I would be like, look at me, I'm doing it all and I'm balancing everything and everything's spinning in the air perfectly. And then sometimes I'll look back at photos, like you're saying, you know, where I'm at the pumpkin patch with the kids or I'm at the park. And I don't remember that day because that day I was probably working and volunteering and, you know, everything else. And so it's, it's, it's a myth. It's a myth that we multitask and do it all and be it all. It's all a myth. And you have to, you have to choose what's most important to you. Uh, for me, it's my family and and everything else comes next. But that that thing of being tuned in and turned on and connected to everyone all the time, that is like my number one nemesis right now. I can't tell you how many people will email me on a Friday night or a Saturday morning, ask me a question about a product on my website. And then I'll get another email on Sunday. Hello, Samantha, did you see my email? It's the weekend. (laughs) Can I have the weekend, please? I feel like people don't don't understand that anymore whether you're have an employer or yourself because even if you're self-employed you have people to answer yeah. to.
2: I think our like not being able to disconnect is actually part of our problems in our society I do you too. know to to turn it off to put it aside and why are you still asking questions like that you know when you should be focusing on your own life at that moment I don't know you know but seriously like I think our not a not not being able to disconnect has led to a lot of problems, or we're on it so much too, like that we forget actual human connection.
1: Yeah, yeah. we we actually forget how to have that connection. People don't talk on the phone anymore. People don't. Yeah.
2: They have conversations on text.
1: Yes, but then so much gets lost in there, you know, and it, yeah. that really bothers me too. And I think that we're getting swept up in this. Um, I, don't, I was saying to my girls at dinner the other night. I said. There is very little difference between the life the world is living now and the feudal system. I mean in many ways we're still serfs working for the big person,
2: right? And the bigger person has actually gotten much bigger.
1: Yeah, that's true, you know, cuz one of my I was kind of ranting because there I, a lot of schools are trying to do this early uh, pre-K stuff. And I think kids should be able to be home until at least they're 5 cuz to me education is just Really, a training ground to create worker bees. It's a, it's a way to get your butt in the chair and get you used to working and and following authority and focusing on a regimented schedule. Really, that's what school's about. Because we're not really educating people on how to emote, how to communicate, how to invest, how to <laughs> how to pay bills. We're we're not we're not teaching them anything like that. We're teaching to the test. And I think there's this overall arching theme of preparing them for the workplace. And we're trying to do it younger and younger and younger. And, and it, it's just a pet peeve of mine, if you can tell.
2: No, I can totally understand what you're saying. And I sometimes, you know, listening to you, I think that when we do that, we're sort of living someone else's dream, but it's actually not their dream. It's their ideas of success. And I think it's a shame when we box our children in into what we think they should be instead of let, allowing them to be what they want to be. Because, you know, I became what my parents thought I should be. From the early age of two, I understood that I had to become a doctor, you know, and I don't regret it, but, you know, mid-career, I mean, mid-life, I gave up that career. And my mother still doesn't know, you know, but (laughs) she's a little bit narcissistic. I just don't want to go there. But, um, yeah, like... I think in the way in which I view the podcast is, or even your podcast, if we talk about real things, if we help someone embrace who they really are, that would go in all directions. It would go towards their children too, instead of boxing them in, just being there and allowing them to hopefully figure it out and be. And be, and, And be
1: loved and accepted for whoever and whatever they choose. Yeah. And that's that's hard for a parent. That's hard for us to do for ourselves. Because I know your parents wanted you to be a doctor from a place of love, because they probably thought, oh, that's success, that's security, that's safety, she'll be fine. But really, what we need to do is just see our children not as extensions of ourselves, yeah, as individual beings. I love that your mother does not know you've made this big change. And I love that she doesn't even Google you and find your podcast because it's exactly
2: like my mom. She would have. She I'm would lucky either. She can't use a computer, you know? <laughs> and I think for, you know, my mother, it wasn't really out of love. I think it was more of a, I'm an extension of herself. She never had a career. So she owns me and I You know, she lives vicariously through what I do, but she thinks she's responsible for it. It's like this weird sadistic approach. And she's been a great person from whom I've learned in my life all the sorrow that she brought. I really did learn a lot from it. And I think that was part of my spiritual process. But she's definitely taught me a lot.
1: Yeah. Narcissistic parents will do that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. They'll obliterate you. And then we can, we can get to a point where, you know, maybe that's our rock bottom yeah, and we say that's enough.
0: Have you seen a big difference, Michelle, with your own health, wellness, mindfulness, and with your family since you've stepped away from from being on that treadmill?
2: I think I'm much more aware. Like I don't feel like I'm sp- in, like spinning like like twenty plates right now. I allow myself to even like have quiet, silent moments with my children. And before, I feel like that wasn't even allowed. We always had we're, had to do something, even if I felt like totally depleted. But I feel aware with how I feel. And, you know, I fall off the train a lot too. Like one of my addictions is sugar. Like I am very aware that, you know, I love the taste and sometimes I can't control my animal, but <laughs> I'm aware about like what makes me feel good and what makes me feel bad. Or if I feel stressed to understand that and oh, if, know what that feeling is in my like, Chest or my neck.
0: Because I think a lot of, especially in the medical field, they'll talk about mindfulness, they'll talk about stress reduction, they'll talk about it, but it's not easily applied to the people that are actually in the field.
2: Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, in the field, I think emotions are not spoken of at all. No one ever says, after like a really difficult moment, I feel really stressed, I feel really badly in in the medical world there's something called second victim syndrome and we all experience this but no one talks about it because you don't want to be considered like the weak doctor or weak medical staff but if there is a mistake that happens in medicine or it doesn't even have to be a mistake right it could be like a bad outcome there's something called second victim syndrome where the first victim is the patient and the second victim is the medical staff but there is a huge there's a significant portion of medical staff that don't recover from that. They carry that. It turns out into depression. It can contribute to physician suicide. And that's actually at a very high right now. But these are things are not unfortunately often spoken of. And for me, that's part of the stress that I felt in the hospital, unfortunately. And I would suffer alone. If there was a bad outcome for a patient, I would make sure I reviewed the chart like crazy to see where I could have helped that person or where I could have made a different decision. And it gets to the point where it gets like almost like torment or like sadism because it's so harsh on thyself. Like I think everyone should review, but it's to the point it's, but to the level that I was doing it, unfortunately became a little bit sadistic where I would make myself suffer until I could exonerate myself.
1: Okay. Though I totally get that because I don't have any friends that are doctors, but I became good friends with the doctor who I believe saved my former husband's life. And you know, we would have lunch for, on the year anniversary. And I said to him, Dr. David, what do you do when you have a bad day? Like if I wake up and I feel like crap or I have a headache or I just don't feel like teaching, I just walk into the classroom and I go, guess what, everybody, we're going to watch a movie <laughs> you know, or we're going to do group work. And it's fine. I said, you walk in, you can't have a bad day. He's a thoracic surgeon. Like, what are you going to do? Say, oh, well, let's hope this goes well. And he said, yeah, you just, you don't have bad days. You push through it. And he said, you compartmentalize all of that. And I think that's how so many people get through this lie. Some, some people live, you know, of, yeah, this is the best career or this is the best relationship is they just compartmentalize all of it and they're not fully awake. What's that Rumi quote? Those that are sleeping, you know, let them sleep. I feel like through so many of your stories, you were awake, you were awake at that conference and kind of joking and kind of not with your mantra and everyone else <laughs> is very serious. And you, know, you were awake when you're going through the patient files. I think so many people are just kind of following along, trudging, marching through this path of expectations and they're not fully awake.
2: Yeah. And I think that facade is so unfortunate Mm -hmm. because that facade is just a mask. And when you compartmentalize, and I do agree, I think a lot of people do it, that adds up after a while and it becomes this huge burden that we walk with. And that huge burden also affects our well being and health. You know, if you don't release that like bad pus, sometimes it's got to go. It needs to like pop, you know? But if it doesn't, it just becomes this huge burden we choose to walk with, and I think that's the unfortunate thing with doctors because we carry a huge weight. Sometimes we don't quite understand what that is because we're not aware. But you know, when I worked in corporate medicine, they recorded everything because the computer system is stellar. And at the retirement meeting, they would note that you know, like the average age of death in the U.S. right now, it's a little bit lower. It's eighty years old, you know, but it's a little bit lower with the pandemic, but at the corporation I worked with, it was actually 10 years younger than that. So doctors would die, doctors die earlier. So the 95% generally die within seven years of retirement. 95%. That's insane. When you You think
1: of it that way. Wow.
2: But how many people accept that or we do choose not to think about it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. But
2: every day I think we choose our path, like how we live Based on how we live, and you determine how you're gonna live your day. But that I think ultimately affects how we all die.
1: I think what you what you say on your show and what you've said here is so true. Are you willing to die for this career? Now there are some people. I had an uncle who had a very monotonous job that he did not like, but and he did it for 30 years, but he loved, he took a lot of pride in providing for his family. And so I think you can have a career where you're like, eh, I don't know, but you have a lot of pride in what that career is doing for you, you know, and he had a lot of hobbies outside of work. So I don't, I don't want anyone listening to this being like, well, I do have the golden handcuffs and they're not coming off. So what am I going to do? Because I do think it's all about perception.
2: Right? Yeah. Or like your uncle was, it just sounds like he was translating that energy. Yes. He translated it into something that actually made him feel good in his life. Yeah. And even though it was hard, it still made him feel good. But for others, sometimes when it's hard, it can make you feel badly. But can you translate it? And like, I think that's very beautiful what you were saying. He translated it into hobbies, things he loved to do. I think things that we love to do contributes to our health yeah, you know, and definitely. our well-being.
1: You know, my um, my daughter works at an assisted living home. And she and her friend have become really good friends with this 90-year-old man named Frank. So he had a birthday uh, last Saturday. So they took him out to dinner and then he came over to uh, our friend's house for cake. And so we were just talking to him all night. He worked for Coca-Cola for 40 years. And I said, wow, what was that like, Frank? And he said, well, you know, until this huge megalith corporation took it over, it was the perfect job. He said, we were treated so well half day Fridays in the summer, you know, people would just have parties and social gatherings and corporate picnics. And he said, then this, this huge corporation bought us out. And he said, everything, there were no more half day Fridays in the summer. There were no more social picnics. There was none of that. And he said, everything changed. He said, it was like, he said, it was like there was this static cling energy running through every one of us where we just felt nervous every single day. And he said and men from the head corporation would come in with clipboards and they would say, hmm, there's a lot of gray hair, hair around here. And he said, so we were just on edge all the time. And I thought, gosh, that's happened to so many companies, you know, with, with just the dehumanization
2: of what it means. To,
1: yeah.
2: And it, it, it bothers me. And I think like with the pandemic and I don't bring this up to be like Debbie Downer, I really bring it up because just so that everyone understands like, We're not alone with how we feel. Sometimes we just don't say it. But there's many people that feel like the way you feel. And I think that's especially like the blessing of the pandemic. We were all forced to stop. And I think when we're forced to stop, we are also asked, how do you choose to live? And I think that could be your opportunity. Mm.
1: That is beautifully said. We we need that opportunity to just stop, yeah, collaborate and listen.
0: And a lot of what you're saying, Michelle, is about finding that place within yourself to give yourself permission to walk away, to take care of yourself, to be mindful, to have a higher quality of life. And that isn't easy, especially if you've been successful or you have a certain level of experience or expertise in a certain area of your life. The other part, though, is a lot of people, I think, are trying to figure out who they are without that label. Who am I if I'm not a doctor or a teacher or working in the Coca-Cola factory? And I, I think that's one of the saddest things I ever heard is I had worked with this woman who had taught the same subject in the same building for 50 years, 50 damn years She started teaching there when I was two years old. And I just thought, is there nothing else in your life that you want to experience besides this? And I asked her one day, not not in those words, obviously. I was very polite about it. And I said, well, what do you like to do? She said, that's why I'm still here. I don't have anything outside of this. And (laughs) that just kind of broke my heart. Yes, because I think, but part of this whole pandemic is exactly what you just said, is this wake up of, what brings me joy? What do I enjoy? What's going to bring balance? Because, and I know there are people who are listening that think that's not an option for me to leave my job or to not be the primary breadwinner for my family. But if you can work in something that is joyful, that is happy, that resonates with who you really are, don't you feel that can be a catalyst to kind of getting you out the door towards something else sometimes?
2: Absolutely. And I really think that like, I really wonder why we limit ourselves so much. Like, if someone asks you that question, who do you want to be? Or who do you want to be when you grow up? Why do, we, why do we label it as a job? Like, why can't we just be me? Or why can't we be ourselves? Like, if I were Michelle Choi and you're Samantha Fay and you're Denise Corell, we can make it limitless. And I'm not saying, like, dreams don't just happen. Like, I work nights in the hospital the scariest place on earth to support my endeavors right now. (laughs) It's not without struggle, you know, but I think we can all find a way and to be merciful to ourselves through the process, but don't limit yourself. And I think we limit ourselves out of fear, but if by being you, you could be so much more, who would you be? Mm.
0: Love that. Love, love, love that.
1: I do too. You had a monologue about that in one of your episodes, that question, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it it should be changed to something like, who do you want to be when you grow up? Or what do you want to share when you grow up? Or just don't even ask that question. You know, let the kid be a
2: kid. Or what you love. Yes. Be aware of what you love.
1: Yeah. I have a I have a cousin who is just hilarious and just doesn't give two craps about what anyone thinks. And when people ask her, what, what do you do? She always says, about what? Like she'll never answer a question about her career or any, because she's like, that's not who I am. I'm not even going to answer it. So if people say to her, what do you do? She says, about what? And I think that's perfect because we should not let our career define us. My goal always with jobs that I've had I don't want to have a job that I want to retire from.
2: I remember you saying that, and Samantha, that's something I've never ever forgotten. Oh. You said that you, right now, on uh, the podcast episode with um, Deb, you said, "I love my job so much, I can never, I can see myself never retiring." Yes, and I think that's going to add to your health and well-being. You know, because you yeah. love it so much, that's what's going to keep you alive. And I remember when I heard that. That threw me off on my rocker so much. I went into my hospital shift. I'm like, have you ever heard of that before? A person who doesn't want to retire, (laughs) but it stayed with me. I've never forgotten what you said.
1: Oh, that makes me so happy. I really don't want to retire. And I don't, I've asked people a lot too, who are just waiting I mean, you should have seen my book club last month. They all were tallying up with their NC State retirement, you know, how many more years and months they had. And and I I said to them, what are you going to do when you retire? And they were like, anything I want. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But like after the first two years where you do anything you want, that gets, you know, then what are you going to do? Yes. Okay, you sleep in, you read, you go on a vacation. All right, then what? I just think you always have to have passions and something joyful that you're contributing to and sharing and, and like uh, an area
2: of growth yeah. that you can invent or build on to. Yeah.
1: yeah. And it doesn't matter what it is. Like yours started with self-help books. Like who would think reading self-help books would lead to this. And I would like you to rephrase if you don't mind me being so presumptuous, but I would like you to rephrase your midlife crisis to midlife awakening.
2: Oh, I love that. Thank you. I'll do that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Cuz it's not a crisis that you're going through. You know, it's an awakening and and this is going to have a generational impact. I mean, think about your kids when they're choosing their major in college or um god forbid they have a job they're not crazy about. They're always going to have you to look to. Your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. Can you imagine? And in like the year 2100, well, you know, grandma Michelle walked away from a medical degree. (laughs) So surely you can walk away from this crappy boss at IBM. I mean, that's, it's a gift you're giving.
2: I think that's a funny thing that you mentioned because really quick story. Like I went to an Ayurvedic medicine doctor, right? Because I wanted to do, I'm thinking about doing an um, interview on Ayurvedic medicine. And I had no idea that when during an appointment, they look at your astrological chart, like Vedic, right? And so I kind of joked as like a conversation starter. Oh, I'm in my midlife crisis, and the guy. Oh my gosh, I nearly like wanted to scratch his eyes out. But he was like, he's like, this is not your midlife crisis right now. It's gonna happen in seven years. <laughs> Nails on the wall. So I asked him. I'm like, and I sometimes I hate the way people state stuff. And I mean, my people are especially hard, right? Because they just state it. There's no buffer. So I asked him. Is this something that everyone goes through in their life to learn? And then he, he adds, yes. And his dad's the one who's really famous in Ayurvedic medicine. So I said, I just want to know what, what happened to your dad during this period in his life. And he told me, but he, he failed to tell me or failed to add that this is a period of time that everyone just goes through to add to their lives. And all you need to do is just survive.
1: That is so frustrating. Is it like you're sad in return in a way?
2: I'm not really sure. I'm not the best in astrology, but the way it was so blunt. Yeah. I mean, like, I was ready to pull his hair, you know? I don't believe
1: you. I don't <laughs> like it when anyone says to me, this is going to happen. It kind of fires up the inner rebel in me because I really believe so much and you know, like Dr. Bruce Lipton will say that too, and so will so many others that we we are constantly co-creating our reality. You know, there's this I call it the beautiful dance between destiny and fate. and I, I don't like it when people say, this is what's definitely going to happen.
2: Me too. I mean, it really hit the wrong chord with me. But I also think if we take care of if we take care of ourselves, if we grow, really, even if it sucks, there's nothing that we can't do. You know, you'll make sure that you're on your raft called, you know, in the ocean called life. But there is nothing that you can't do if you take care of yourself. That's if you have enough.
0: With everything that you've done, with everything that you've accomplished, now it's like, what comes next? What? It, because I feel like that you're right on the edge of this precipice, getting ready. You've brought forth the the podcast. You're sharing this. You're easing your way out of the medical field. Do you have, what's your new goal? Because I agree, you Mm -hmm. haven't even hit your stride yet. And I there's so much more that you're going to bring forth because this is feels very, very much like service work for you.
2: And I love it. And I've, I've been loving the process right now, you know? And I've committed to another year of the podcast and we'll go from there. But I think over the next two months, something that I'd like to work on is maybe putting the monologues together as a book and seeing what comes out of that. Beautiful, because I think listening to my monologues, I've realized like I've put my vulnerabilities out there to maybe inspire someone that they're not alone and that we can all heal from whatever is hurting us. And I think I'd like to put it together as a book and see how it turns out. Uh, I think I'm going to try to self-publish it. And I have like my own business tactic ready. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy a lot of copies and just hand it out to people for free. Until it builds momentum. Since well, I'm, no one knows me anyway, you know. I,
0: I think more people know you than you realize, sweetie. I, I agree. Really do. <laughs> Truly what I love about your work and about your podcast is it's not geared towards any one demographic or age or gender. It's very much you're casting this beautiful wide net. And so many people, so when you said you were going to put those in your monologues into a book, so many people will read it and relate to that as like, you're speaking to them personally, which is an amazing gift.
2: Yeah. Thank so you thank so you. much. Well, <laughs> Cause I really you. think we're, we're bound by our humanity. Like you're shining your light in your way and I'm doing my version, but we all have a version that can, that can like add to the full and the total, you yes, know, exactly. like, yes. it's like symbiotic it doesn't take it away from anyone else, you know, but it's a collective work for all of us.
1: Yeah, we're all here to share our light and how we share it is unique to us. And we all have to contribute to it. And you're doing it with this huge leap of faith. You know, I love the ancient legend of the Lady Fortuna, which is where we get that expression, fortune favors the brave. The ancient Romans said that she would sit and watch and wait and listen to everyone, you know, praying for her to help with her good fortune. And she would never lift a finger to help until they took that first leap of faith. And that's what that's what you've done. You've taken this huge leap of faith and now you're going to see Lady Fortuna helping you. Uh-huh. I'm sure, your podcast will continue to grow. And I can't wait to read your book because those monologues, I'm telling you people, even if you don't listen to the guest, just listen to her monologues because they're just very, very touching. And they always leave me. I usually listen to yours your podcast when I'm driving and what oh. I'll do often after the monologue is I'll just pause it for a second. Cause I have to think, cause you always, you always pose really good open-ended questions or topics that you have to think about a minute. You can't just plunge through and
2: and wait for the guest to tell you what to think about it. So I, Wow. That. Coming from my heroes, this means a lot. Go Thank on. you so much for this person. I'll never forget what you've told me. It's going to be in my heart for- forever coming from my heroes. Thank you. Thinking about bravery, it's hard like sometimes I don't feel like doing it. Like sometimes there's moments, there's many moments that I think we all think about giving up. And I just want everyone to know there have been many moments for me. And sometimes, you know, you just I think the I think the truth is the majority of us give up. But what would happen If you didn't, if you had that faith, and that's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering what would happen if I don't give up.
1: (laughs) Just, just you wait and see, really and truly. Just you wait and see, because big things will happen. I, I don't think Deb and I had our audience for years. You know, I remember the first year. It was like, who's listening to who? The how are they finding us? I mean, it was very badly produced little Colin show on blog talk radio. So it took time for people to find us. And I have heard that as true for most podcasts. You know, it takes time for to build up that audience. And I, I just, I don't think it's going to take you as long as it took us. I think you're going to do it much, much quicker than that, but do not give up. And anyone I'll, I'll put it. my head
2: down and keep on smiling That's and pressing right. underneath my breath. That's right.
1: And <laughs> Before we go, say your mantra again.
2: My friends, fuck this shit, never give up. I love it. <laughs> my husband Thank thought it was too morbid, but that was my mantra. I would like literally walk down the office hallways, fuck this shit, never give up. <laughs> <laughs> I would like literally <laughs> see underneath my breath, all the nurses, medical assistants would laugh, the secretary would giggle, and I would just be like, fuck this shit, never give up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's such a freedom in that my college roommate that was always her expression like if she overslept for class she'd go oh fuck it if she didn't get a good grade oh it was just her whole attitude about life and she was so chill so i think you're on to something there <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very, very much for coming on this podcast and for all the beautiful wisdom and experience and your journey that you shared with us. I really know that you've inspired so many other listeners. Guys, don't forget, if you want to check out Michelle, please go to her podcast, Lost or Found. You can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts, but we will post links to all of her social media and websites, podcast in the show notes and on our Facebook page. Please remember as always to show up, do great work and share your light. Take care.